and especially with a church where I've never had the opportunity to worship with you and grateful for the gospel that we share in common that was sung and prayed over already and uh, thankful for the ministry of this local church. I've had the joy of being a pastor or being in ministry for 45 years and I've never gotten over the joy of the gospel and what it has done and continues to do in my life and I hope you feel the same way. I'd like to start off with just a brief word of testimony because it ties to the message of the book of Jude. I was born in um, South Norwalk, Connecticut, which is right along uh, Long Island um, Sound, uh, about an hour out of New York City. We were a church-attending family, but the church in which we attended was not a gospel-preaching church. I never heard the saving message of the gospel while we attended there. Uh, my mother taught Sunday school. My father was an usher, and uh, we attended regularly. Our, I remember our assistant pastor coming from Yale Divinity School, not exactly the citadel of conservative biblical Christianity then or now. I do remember something happening. My mother and father had friends that lived out in the country, and my dad helped this uh, man build his beautiful country home. And in exchange, they gave property to my parents. We lived in a government-subsidized project. My dad, an auto mechanic, that's all he could afford. And those people that were close friends to my parents became Jehovah's Witnesses. They did everything in their power to try to convert my mother and my father inviting them to, in quotes, Bible studies, which weren't Bible studies at all. My mother turned to her pastor for uh, help, and uh, he invited her to a study, and she would come home in tears from that study, saying, I I'm more confused than ever. I don't, I'm being told that uh, Moses didn't write the first five books and that the, the Gospels were written later, and, and she said, I'm more confused than ever. And were it not for a... My, my godly grandfather and step-grandmother who um, prayed over them and tried to guide them, we probably would have been brought up with that false religion. So when I think about defending the faith, I think about how important that is. When I was 10, we moved to upstate New York. We began attending a little church in our small town, and uh, the, the pastor there was just as liberal as what I had just described. But one pastor came to, to our church, he was a converted coal miner who had attended back then practical Bible training school, which um, was a, a very fine school in Johnson City, New York. And he began to preach and proclaim the gospel and to teach. It was the first time in my life I saw someone stand in the pulpit and preach the word of God with conviction that it was indeed the word of God and the gospel was the only means of salvation. That was a liberal denominational church. He didn't last long, but while he was there... He encouraged my parents to let me go with his son to a camp in the Pocono Mountains of Pennsylvania. There at that camp on a Friday night, there were young people making a decision to trust Christ as their Savior, and I'd never seen any kind of an invitation like that. And so I turned to another camper, also about 12 years old, happened to have been a missionary's uh, son, and I said, what, uh, what are these kids doing? He says, they're getting saved. I said, what do you mean saved? And he, at, at that point, the um, fireside time was done and everyone was making their way to the snack shack or to go to the pool or to play miniature golf or something else. And that 12-year-old took me into the tabernacle and with his New Testament led me to Jesus Christ. 
And I was marvelously and gloriously saved by the grace of God that night. Back in that church, again, that pastor left. Another pastor came that was theologically liberal again. And so I knew I had been saved. I knew God had saved me. I tried reading the Bible, but I was never discipled at that point. And uh, by the time I was 18 years old, I, I determined that though I was a Christian, the local church had nothing for me. And I stopped attending altogether. I would have considered myself back in that time a part of the Jesus movement. And um, that, that was all that I knew. When I was 18, though, my mother and father had had some difficulties in their marriage, had separated when I was 14, got back together, were unable to really deal with the problems in their relationship. And a friend of my mother's at work invited her to the First Baptist Church of Sydney, New York. The pastor at that time, Pastor Harry Ross. You would not know him, but his fingerprints are all over my life, my discipleship, my pastoral ministry, and my marriage today. His ministry, as my parents began coming to that church, the pastor came to our home and led my dad to Jesus Christ. And two weeks later, my mother was converted in the parsonage when when the, the pastor's wife led her to Christ. They were encouraging me to come to church with them, and I had had everything that I ever wanted to do with church, so I, I, I put it off. And finally, I decided I would go one time just to get them off my back. Now, try to picture this. I had very long, curly hair. I put on the wildest paisley shirt I had. I had my motorcycle jacket on. I had jeans with holes in them before that was cool. I had my motorcycle boots on and an attitude. And I walked into the church. And for the second time in my life, I heard a man stand in the pulpit. And I really believe under the control and power of the Spirit of God was preaching the Word of God. The church was full. I had never heard worship like that. And, and people were coming to Christ regularly through that ministry. It's like somebody had just opened a closet door and turned on the light. And this, I said, this is what I've been looking for all my life and didn't know it. And I couldn't get enough of it. Friends, the gospel makes a difference. It was through the ministry of that church that my girlfriend at that point that I had to break up with because she wasn't converted trusted Christ, and we've now been married 49 years. It was through the ministry of that church that I was baptized, and she was baptized. And my older brother, Jack, that mentored your pastor, was converted through the ministry of that church. My, my other brother was converted and became a Christian counselor. My sister was converted. God moved through the preaching of the gospel through a local church like this. But friends, the gospel must be defended as well as proclaimed. And if we look at the book of Jude together, I want you to just um, focus with me on this. The, the book of Jude is one of the shortest books in the New Testament. It's uh, along with Philemon, 2nd and 3rd John, and Jude, what some would call a Bible postcard. Not long enough to be a letter, but I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't demean it in that way. The book of Jude is a book that really could deserve a whole series of messages on it. But I want to bring to you an overview of this book to be able to introduce it to you and cause you to understand the argument of the book of Jude for why defending the faith matters, why defending the gospel matters. And so if you have your notes that are uh, there in your bulletin, I'd encourage you to take them out and take your Bibles as we begin to pursue this book that was just so wonderfully read for us in part.
So if you look at the first four verses of the, of the book of Jude, you have um, the introduction and the purpose of the book given to us. Uh, the first two verses, like in many of these letters, you have the, the, uh, the one who is the author, the salutation, and the recipients. I don't know why we always write our handwritten letters, and at the end we put our signature. In the Bible, they put them at the beginning. So you know who's writing it, you know who's receiving it. And so he says the, the author is Jude, literally Judah, a servant of Jesus Christ, literally a bondservant of Jesus Christ, and brother of James. What he's not writing here is he, James and Judah or Jude were half-brothers of Jesus Christ. They were children born of Mary and Joseph after Jesus had been born of a virgin because of no father, human father, therefore giving him a sinless humanity in order to become the Lamb of God, our Savior. But, but he was raised in that same family. And if you were to look through the Gospels and see what was true of Jude and James, or James later becoming the leader of the church of Jerusalem, they did not believe in Jesus. Matter of fact, in Luke chapter, uh, in, in um, John chapter 7, verse 5, we are told that they were encouraging the brothers, Jesus, to go up to Jerusalem and, and at a time that knowing it would put his life at risk. And Jesus refused to do what they said. And the Bible tells us in John 7, 5, they did not believe in Jesus. Imagine that. Growing up in a home where Jesus was your elder brother. Now, that may have been frustrating at times to have a brother that always obeyed, always did right, always submitted, always was under the authority of the parents. Um, sibling rivalry may have been a part of it, but they simply did not believe his miracles or his identity. Later, they were converted, uh, we believe, after the resurrection. Because we're told in, in Acts 1.14 that, that his brothers were with them in the upper room after the resurrection. And they did become believers in Jesus Christ. But he, in humility here, says, I'm simply a servant of Jesus Christ. He makes no claim to that brotherly relationship. He said, I'm just a bondservant of Jesus Christ. I'm a brother to James, who would be well known. And then he tells us who he's writing to. Those who are called and those who are beloved in God the Father and those who are kept for Jesus Christ. I want you to notice, those who are um, called, that's past, called by faith to Jesus Christ, called to be a disciple of Jesus, those who are made holy and, and beloved in God the Father, that's in the present, and kept, protected, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Now, he's going to end this book by talking about how Christ keeps us, how he protects us, but he begins with that. Those who are called... Those who are invited by God's grace to trust in Christ, those who are beloved by him, and those who are preserved. There's an interesting thing about this, about this book. Probably this book was written to Jewish believers, and I think so because of some of the references he makes to Old Testament stories, assuming that they knew them, and even to a, a part of Jewish literature, First Enoch, that he quotes here, probably all of these people were Jewish converts to Christianity that he's writing to. 
And so he's doing that. The time of this book isn't given to us, but it's probably somewhere between 60 A.D. and 80 A.D. Um, and, and, and during that time frame. The, the greeting that he gives then, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied for you. Very, very common in a salutation of, the, of a book of the Bible after giving the author and the recipients that you would give a salutation. So he does. He said... First of all, he prayed that mercy would be shown to them. Mercy is God in Christ satisfying the demands of his own wrath and, and righteousness so that we could have a relationship with him. Friends, if anybody ever says, I just want God to give me what I deserve, they are thinking wrongly. I am very grateful that God in Christ is not giving me what I deserve, but gave me what I did not deserve, his grace. And mercy is God satisfying his own wrath, his own holiness, his own righteousness on the cross. Mercy leads them to peace, shalom, as the Jews would say, having a relationship with God that now makes the broken person whole in Christ. Peace, shalom, and love be multiplied to you. Second time in the salutation, he mentions love, and he's going to refer repeatedly to them being beloved. He says it here in verse 3. He begins his, the proper part of his letter by saying beloved. He calls them beloved again in verse 17, and he ends his letter in verse 20 and 21 with calling them beloved. So friends, I want you to know, no matter what your relationships are in your family or friends, you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, are beloved. And if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So I want you to know today, you are beloved in Jesus Christ. You are loved by God. It may be a while since anybody told you that you are loved. I want to tell you this morning, you're loved by God. And that love is a sacrificial love that was shown on the cross. Mercy, peace, and love in Jesus Christ. But then he begins to tell us about his purpose. In verse 3 and 4, he said, Beloved, though I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, in other words, to explain the gospel, to exposit the gospel, like Paul did in Romans, or Paul did in Ephesians 1 to 3, or Colossians, the first couple chapters. He said, I wanted to simply share with you more of the depth of the riches of, of Christ and the gospel. He said, that's what I wanted to do. But he said, it was necessary, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. To call to you to have an uncompromising commitment to the gospel, to the faith. It was necessary to exhort you, to challenge you, to contend. This, this word means to agonize passionately. To, to passionately protect and defend the faith, meaning, and, and in the Bible, whenever you have the word the in front of the faith, it's not talking about your personal trust, but the content of your faith. In other words, the gospel, the Bible, sound Bible doctrine. He's saying contend for the faith. Contend for those truths that are essential, the apostolic faith. And so he starts with great passion, and that passion continues through the entire book. When you read the Bible, you need to also look at the emotion that's being expressed. You can go to the Psalms and you have somebody praying in great depression, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, or a great anxiety, Psalm 37. 
Here, Jude is, is very passionate as he shares with them, and that passion continues throughout the entire book. The book is filled with images and metaphors. He's going to very quickly move through a lot of things. You need to use your imagination, your sanctified imagination, when you read this book. Because he's going to use a lot of metaphors. He's going to use a lot of word pictures to express why we need to contend, uh, contend for the faith or, or defend it. Why that matters so much. When I look at comparing the book of Jude with any other part of the New Testament, probably the chapter that comes the closest is 2 Peter chapter 2. You may want to jot that down. 2 Peter chapter 2 has a number of the same themes and the same call to defend or contend for the faith. Although there's many places in scripture that that same call is given to us. From verses 4 to 16, we have the false teachers being exposed. And in verse 4, he actually identifies the false teachers. Look at how he describes them. He says, certain people have crept in. In other words, they have infiltrated the church. They have crept in like a fatal disease. He said, they have crept into the church unannounced, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Condemnation that will come to all those who hold to a false gospel, to those who promote false doctrine. He said they, they, they have marked for um, condemnation, and they are ungodly people. He will develop that later when he talks about what does he mean by ungodliness, but they are ungodly. In other words, though they, they would be religious, they are ungodly. You can be religious and be ungodly, you know that? Because a true and living God, the Trinity, the God of the Bible, is not the center of your faith or of your worship. So you can be ungodly and be religious. And that's what's true of these false teachers as he talks about them. Many New Testament letters deal with false teaching. They were, he's these ungodly people. But look at what they do as he now is identifying these false teachers. They pervert the grace of God into lust or sensuality. They deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So he's charging these false teachers with a couple of things right up front. He says, first of all, they have turned the grace of God into a license for sin, immorality, sensuality. Paul, in Romans chapter 6, addresses this very issue. He said, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Grace should never be used as an excuse for sin. If you as a professing believer ever in your mind think, God will forgive me anyway, so I might as well go ahead and do it, then you do not understand and you have not valued and you're not appropriating the grace of God. Paul actually is saying that's falling into a false teaching, license. Grace was not given for license. Titus, in his book, talks about how the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Friends, grace is the greatest motivation for righteous, holy living. The more you understand the cross and what happened there, what we sang about today, the more you understand that that must change your behavior, must change your, your attitude towards sin. When I think that my sin crucified Jesus, my sin caused him to be separated from the Father, my sin caused him to agonize and, and cry out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How can I ever look at grace as a license for sin? But that's what these false teachers are doing. 
We're also reading they're rebelling against God's authority. They're rebelling against the authority of God. They're denying our master and Lord. They're denying him. That the authority of God is no longer something that they see themselves in terms of the sovereignty of God, the authority of God. The lordship of Christ is not something that they're, that's a part of their life. He said it's a false doctrine, it's false teaching. And they're rejecting Christ's identity. It's interesting when he says the Lord, our master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The lordship of Christ speaks of his deity and his authority. Jesus speaks of his saving work in the gospel, that he is the savior of Jehovah who, who came to die on the cross. And Christ speaks of him being Messiah, the mediator between God and man, who's both prophet, priest, and king. The prophet greater than Moses, the priest greater than Aaron, and the king greater than David or Solomon. He is all of that and so much more. And he says they are denying Christ. Friends, mark this. There are several doctrines that will always mark out false religions. And if you, if you acquaint yourself with these doctrines, you can then spot that which is a counterfeit. Our youngest daughter worked for a period of time at Huntington Bank, and she was a teller. And they showed her how to be able to spot a counterfeit $20 bill, which is the bill that is most often counterfeited. They showed her the markings and the things. They studied, had her study the genuine, the real, the authentic, so that she could tell what was inauthentic and not real. And by, by learning sound doctrine, you can spot that which is not sound. But if you go through all of the false religions, the early creeds of the church, if you go through the, the different uh, heresies that have come into the church, if you look at the cults and the false religions, if you look at even the issues of the Reformation or the fundamentalist controversy within, within um, Western Christianity, in each of those you will find there are cardinal doctrines that you need to be able to identify. One is a doctrine of Scripture. A low view of Scripture leads to a low view of salvation and of Christ and of, of, of God's grace. So Scripture being inspired in the authority of God. An improper view of God, denial of the Trinity, or denial of the orthodox attributes of God, is another one. Scripture, God. Another one is Christ. A denial of Christ's virgin birth, a denial of Christ's humanity or his deity, a denial of Christ's substitutionary death, a denial of Christ's resurrection. Those, those are cardinal doctrines. And he's saying they're, they're denying Jesus Christ. And another one is the doctrine of salvation. That salvation is only by the grace of God, only through Jesus Christ, only through faith. And that the biblical gospel is the only gospel. There is no other way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So, friends, we need to know sound doctrine. We need to know a high view of Scripture, a high view of the Trinity and the attributes of God, a high view of Christ and his person and work, a high view of the gospel. And when you get that right, you'll be able to spot a false religion every time. So he's identifying those, he's identifying marks. He then talks about the punishment of these false teachers in verses 5 to 7. And he uses uh, three Old Testament examples in this punishment. All three of these, by the way, have to do with punishment. He's, he, he had identified them. Now he's talking about the punishment of them. He said, I want to remind you, though you once knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt. Isn't that interesting? Jesus saved the people out of Egypt. Jesus is in Exodus. 
Jesus is pictured there in his redeeming work. Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. When they left Egypt, there was a mixed multitude. There were even some Egyptians that went with them. There were some that didn't believe in the true and living God. And later, those ones were punished, destroyed those who did not believe. So when you read about the destruction of certain people in the book of Exodus, in the book of Numbers, those were some of those people, the unbelieving mixed multitude that was there. And then he said there were angels who didn't stay within their own position of authority, in other words, being submitted to God, but with Satan rebelled against his authority, Satan wanting to be as God. They left their proper dwelling. He has kept them in eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So a second example of judgment. Judgment on those who came out of Egypt. Judgment about those false angels. And then he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, accepted in our culture, friends, unacceptable to God. Accepted in our culture, unacceptable to God. That's what he's talking about in Sodom and Gomorrah. And he said, set an, served an example of undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So he uses three illustrations in saying, just as God punished the mixed multitude coming out of Egypt, and just as God punished the, the fallen angels, and just as God punished Sodom and Gomorrah, God will punish false teachers. That's what he's saying. God will punish them. And the judgment, the judgment will be greater for those who deny and cause others to not have the opportunity to hear the gospel. It is a serious thing. It is a serious thing to compromise the gospel. It is a serious thing to teach false doctrine. God will punish those. That's what he's saying. As a matter of fact, he continues on to talk about the characteristics of false teachers in verses 8 to 10. He says, in like manner... These people also, relying upon their dreams, these are people who often will talk about their visions. Uh, Joseph Smith of the Mormons had all kinds of dreams and visions and set up a whole false religion today that continues to move people away from the sound of the gospel. They have dreams, their dreams, and he said, relying on their dreams, they defile the flesh, they defile the flesh and their sin. They reject authority, meaning the authority of Scripture, the authority of God, and he said they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, the, this blasphemy is talking about angelic beings because the explanation he gives, when the archangel Michael contended with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he didn't presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. He said the Lord rebuked thee. Let me explain what's going on here. Moses' body was hidden by God. And... Apparently, there was, a, there was some kind of a battle between Satan and Michael about the care of Moses' body. But Michael, the archangel, one of the highest-ranking rank, angels, would not bring an accusation against Satan, but would only do so in the name of the Lord. These people, he's saying, they tamed, they're claiming authority, even over Satan, over demonic power that they should have no right to claim. Friends, I want you to know, anybody who gets involved in demonism or the occult or Ouija boards or, or tarot cards is playing with something they have no idea that they're playing with. And those, those kind of occult practices are incredibly spiritually dangerous. And they, these are calling out, and he said, they're, these 
Um, these people blaspheme all that they don't understand. They don't know what they're dealing with. They're destroyed by all they like unreasoned animals understand instinctively. And so he says, now this is what's true of them. They're corrupt like beasts. They're speaking evil of, of angelic uh, dignitaries. They're rejecting authority. They're defiling the faith. And they're focusing on their dreams and visions. So then he pronounces a woe on them in verse 11. Woe to them. Woe to them. By the way, the word woe in the Bible is an announcement of judgment. So if you go back, for instance, to Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah calls down a number of woes upon the people. And he, he's saying, God is going to judge you for this. And then he identifies it. And then he says, woe again. God's going to judge you for this. That's why it's interesting in Isaiah chapter 6 that Isaiah says, woe is me for I am undone. He's saying, I deserve the judgment of God. So here, Jude calls out woe upon them, calls out judgment on them. And he identifies three different people in the Old Testament that he uses as illustrations of the, the judgment of God. He says they have walked in the way of Cain, meaning Cain rejected God's truth and God's confrontation of him, demanding that God accept his sacrifice, which was not a blood sacrifice, not offered by faith. And he's rather than what was pictured by Abel in the gospel. And you say, well, what, how did he know about that? Listen, God had already established in the garden that there was a coming redeemer, Genesis 3.15. God had already sought out sinners in the garden. God had already offered a sacrifice for sin. Did it ever occur to you that God himself offers the first sacrifice for sin in the Bible? God himself killed an animal, shed its blood in order to clothe Adam and Eve. So God himself offers a sacrifice to God in the garden. He knew that. Cain knew that. But he determined in his own way that he was going to pursue God. Friends, we don't get to make up the way that you pursue God. God has revealed it. He has spoken in his word. And it is only through the gospel that we can have a relationship with the God that created us, the God who rules over us, the God who is the judge of us, the God who is king of kings and lord of lords. We, we don't get to make that up. So he says they've gone the way of Cain in his own way of worship. Then he says they've also, he mentions Balaam. They have abandoned themselves for the sake of gain of, uh, to Balaam's error. And, and, and Balaam, you remember, was the uh, prophet, a hireling prophet, was actually Balak the king, was trying to get him to curse the people of God. And he was willing to do that if he could have gotten away with it for money. As you read about him in the Old Testament... We, we do know that, in, and you'll read about this in Numbers 22 to 25, and then in Numbers 31, that Balaam basically failed at his attempt to curse the people of God, the nation of Israel. And he found a way around that by actually getting some of the, the uh, uh, pagan women to seduce the men into sexual relationships and then bring the curse of God upon them. And so that's the way of Balaam. That is what he did. He says, they're like that. And then there's the rebellion of Korah, the rebellion of Korah, and perished in Korah's rebellion. So he's saying that these false teachers are like Cain, they are like Balaam, they are like Korah, who rebelled against Moses and rebelled against the word of God. So friends, he's using illustrations that they would understand, saying what happened to them is what's going to happen to these false teachers. It's a serious matter to teach false doctrine. 
It's a serious matter to deny the gospel, is what he's saying. And then if you look with me, in verses 12 to 13, he talks about the effect of these false teachers. These are, he calls them hidden reefs. Now, a reef is something that you would get a boat hung up on. They're hidden reefs in your love feast, as they feast with you without fear. In other words, the love feast was a gathering of God's people, often associated with the Lord's table. And they're gathering together with the people of God, these false teachers. Matter of fact, remember, he said they are those who are crept in unnoticed, verse 4. They're they're meeting with them at their love feast. They're coming to communion. Friends, you need to understand, Satan's way of attacking the church has really been fourfold. He tries to bring disunity to the people of God by bringing conflict through pride and carnality. Secondly, he tries to bring compromise with sin and idolatry. The third is he tries to bring bring, um, false teachers into the church where they can spread their false doctrine and infect the people of God with their disease of false doctrine. And the last one is persecution from outside of the church. Those are the four ways in which Satan will always try to attack the church. Unity, idolatry and sin, the, the spread of false doctrine, and the last one being persecution from outside the church. And here we see that's happening. John in 1 John writes about those that are a part of the Antichrist who were were with us. They went out from us because they were not all of us. Jesus actually taught in the parable of the tares that Satan would try to sow false, false teachers into the midst of the people of God. And that's what's happening here. He said there's stains in your love feast. They're, they're, he gives comparison from nature. So he turns to creation to illustrate what the effect of these false teachers. Look at what he says. He said they're, they're shepherds with feeding themselves. They're not feeding God's people. They're waterless clouds swept along by the winds. You have to understand, the nation of Israel and large parts of that world depended upon the rains for their survival. And so when you have clouds that give no rain, there's no refreshment, there's nothing that they offer. He says that's like these false teachers. They appear to be able to be teachers who are teaching about God, but they're like clouds that are rainless. My wife has a saying, when she sees a cloud floating overhead that's very dark, she said, that's just a floating bladder ready to be able to rain on us. He says, these are, these are uh, floating clouds with no rain. He said, they're fruitless trees in late autumn, leaves gone, fruit gone, twice dead because they're uprooted. He said, there's no fruit, there's no spiritual fruit, there's no water of refreshment, there's no spiritual fruit that's involved. And he says, there's no life, there's no vitality. He said, they're also like wild waves of the sea. They're casting up the foam of their own shame. In other words, you go by the seashore, you go out to Lake Michigan, you go out to the ocean, and you'll see all kinds of things, trash even, that's coming out of the ocean that that foams up on the shore. He said, what they're foaming up is their sin. He's using creation to teach about what their effect is. And then he says, they're wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Stars were used like the GPS of the day. How do you find your your way from one point to another, either on land or on sea? But a wandering star was no good and no use to be able to give direction. A falling star couldn't help you be able to get oriented to where you were or where you should go. In the same way, these false teachers give no real help in terms of the wisdom of God and the wisdom of Scripture. In verses 14 to 15, he talks about the ungodliness of these false teachers. 
He says, it's about these that Enoch, and here he's quoting from the book of First Enoch. If I can just take a moment to talk about that. Some people say, well, why would he quote from a, a book that wasn't a part of our scripture? Well, Paul quotes from uh, prophets or from, from poets, both in the book of Titus and on Mars Hill, that were not scripture. And we actually have also some words of Jesus that we don't find in scripture, like it, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. So for, for Jude to quote from what was a known piece of literature um, that would be helpful to illustrate his point was not at all wrong to do, and he's not saying it was Scripture, but he's quoting it. Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all of the ungodly. Now, now notice how many times he uses the word ungodly here. This is a very ungodly verse. He said to convict all the ungodly... That's in their person, they are ungodly. Their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and all of the harsh things ungodly sinners have spoken against them. So, what does it mean to be ungodly? Well, first we have to understand what it is to be godly. To be godly means God is the center of your life as your creator and redeemer and as your God. And that all of life centers on God. That you live to please God. That you're taking upon the character of Christ. That your behavior models that, that, that life of a follower of God. To be godly is to be spiritually healthy. Godliness is spiritual. It means that you're in shape spiritually. It means that you are godly. So to be ungodly is the opposite of that. The true and living God of the Bible is not the center of your life. Your beliefs aren't reflecting him. Your behavior doesn't show that you're a follower of him. It means everything that he's describing here in terms of the sin of these people. They are ungodly. They do ungodly deeds. Their lifestyle, he says, is ungodly. And they are ungodly speech that they they have. Then he basically talks about the words and the walk of these false teachers. Verse 16, look at their words and their walk. They are grumblers. They are malcontents. And uh, they are loudmouth boasters. In other words, friends, if you are characterized by any of those things, I would be, be repenting if I were you. If your speech is grumbling continually, you're following the wrong example. If you are a malcontent, you're following the wrong example. If you are a loudmouth boaster, you're following the wrong example. Our speech matters, by the way, because Jesus said, out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. And these false teachers, that's what characterizes them. And it says, look at not only the words, but look at their walk, look at their lifestyle. They're walking according to their own sinful desires. They're following their own sinful desires. And they're they're even showing flattery to gain advantage from people. It's interesting how often... In the book of Jude, he links the false doctrine with false living. Friends, doctrine matters because doctrine actually controls our life. Do you understand that? What you believe will ultimately control your behavior. And your behavior will actually expose what you really believe. And that's what's going on here. Now, before we get to the end of this book, I want to encourage you, because from verses 17 to 23, he's going to exhort the believers now, and he's going to give, he's going to give a prescription. He's going to say, how do you deal with this? How do you respond to this? And then he's going to end with a benediction. So look at verse 17 to 19. 
He says, you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they said to you in the last time, there'll be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. And those who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. And so he, he confronts them. He says, remember them. Remember the apostles' words. Friends, it's interesting how, how often in the, the letters of the apostles, false teaching comes up. We already talk, talk about Second Peter chapter 2. John in his letters talks about it. Paul addresses it in the book of Romans. He addresses it in the book of Galatians. He addresses it in Ephesians and Colossians. He addresses uh, the, the false teachers in 1 Corinthians. Paul addresses it over and over again. And so Peter does, James does, and here Jude is addressing the same kind of thing. The, the, the reality is false teaching is nothing new, friends. It has been with us since the apostolic period. And the New Testament actually helps us to know how should we respond. He says, listen, the, these scoffers following their own desires are bringing division. They're following their natural instincts, but they don't have the evidence of the Holy Spirit. I love verse 20 to 23. It's one of my favorite passages in the whole book of Jude. He says, but you, now it's in contrast to these false teachers, but you, those who are true believers, but you, beloved, build yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt, and others save others by snatching them out of the fire, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained with the flesh. Friends, this, this passage, I, I've entitled this, Keep Yourself in the Love of God for this reason. In the structure of the text here, there's, there's a, the main verb is keep yourself in the love of God. And the rest of it is described how. Keep yourself in the love of God. So we have to ask a question, what does it mean to keep yourself in the love of God? Is that to keep God loving you? No. Look at Romans chapter 8. There's nothing that can separate the believer from the love of God. Is it to keep you loving God? Probably closer to the reality. I would liken this to what Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to, to 19. And you may want to put that in, the, in your reference to look at it another time. Paul prayed to the Father of whom the, uh, the entire family in heaven and earth is named. That he would grant you... And then he goes on to say that we would be able to, we who are rooted and grounded in his love, rooted like a tree, grounded like the foundation of a house in the love of God. He says that's what is true of the believer. You are rooted like a tree in the love of God. You are planted upon the, the love of God. You're founded upon the love of God. May be able with all saints, we don't do this independently, but with one another, be able to measure the length and the breadth and the depth and the height of the love of God. That you know the fullness, the dimension of the love of God in the gospel. That Christ would dwell in your hearts and that you being rooted and grounded in love would be able to, be able to reflect that to one another. And that you would then be filled to all the fullness of God. I think it's similar to what Jude is praying here. That the love of God would so be your experience... The, the love that God has shown to you in the gospel would actually become translated into your experience with God that you would love God back and love others back in keeping the great commandment. But he says, how do we do that? He gives us several different ways. Keep yourself in the love of God by building yourself up in your most holy faith, by edifying yourself by the word of God. 
The word of God is that which is able to build you up, Acts 20, 32. And so build yourself up by the intake of the word of God. Friends, listen, every believer needs a daily intake of the word of God to build yourself up in faith. I couldn't survive in my Christian life for very long without a daily intake of the word of God. And if you're not in the practice of that, I want to encourage you to spend time every day reading the word of God. And if you don't know what to do in reading the word of God, I want to ask you just to simply take two questions. Who are you, Lord, and what do you want me to do? And start there. Who are you, Lord? What do you want me to do? Build yourself up in your faith. Feed your faith, in other words. Secondly, he said praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, friends, he's not talking about praying in tongues. He's talking about the help of the Holy Spirit in guiding us in how to pray and what to pray and prompting us to pray. The Holy Spirit is your prayer partner. He is in in praying in the Spirit. Paul in Ephesians 6.18, after talking about the spiritual armor, says praying always with prayer and supplication in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to help guide you to pray. You ever feel, I had to pray about that? Right, that, that thought comes to your mind. Friends, stop and pray. I believe the Holy Spirit prompts us in prayer, guides us in prayer, helps us in prayer, and what a wonderful intercessor he is. Then he says, looking for the mercy of Jesus Christ, which means anticipate Christ's return. Keep yourself in the love of God by building yourself up in the faith. Keep yourself in the love of God by praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourself in the love of God by looking forward to Jesus coming back again. Friends, I'm, I'm heading off on a road trip on Wednesday. I'll be leaving early Wednesday morning to go out to almost to Washington, D.C. to speak at a conference. I am already looking forward to getting back to my wife. I never leave when I'm not already looking forward to, to reuniting with her and getting back after 49 years. So I'm, as I'm thinking about driving on Wednesday, I'm thinking about speaking on Thursday and Friday and Saturday and then going to see my mother and my brother in, in, in uh, northeast Pennsylvania. And I've already planned where I'm going to stay on the way home, and I can't wait to get back. Friends, do you anticipate the return of Jesus that way? Do you anticipate the rapture? Do you love him so much that you cannot wait to be in his presence? to see his glory, to express in person your gratitude for his grace. And then showing compassion, showing compassion, he says. Have mercy on those who doubt, and then save others, snatching them out of the fire, those that are unsaved. And, and, and with fear, those that are fearful, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. In other words, minister to other people with compassion. How do we keep ourselves in the love of God? Jude tells us. Keep that experience of God's love for you, you loving God back and loving others by building yourself up in your faith, by praying in the Holy Spirit, by looking to the mercy of Christ in his return, and show compassion to others, to doubters, to the unsaved, to the fearful. And Jude then ends this, this beautiful book, this challenging book, with this doxology. And the encouragement that this gives surrounded by all of the things that may tempt you and by the false teachers that would try to get you to go astray. Now to him, who is able to keep you from stumbling on the path of discipleship, one who can present you blameless before the presence of his glory, blameless because of Christ, blameless because of the gospel, blameless because of his forgiveness and his cleansing blood, the presence of his glory with great joy, With great joy, 
He's able to keep you from stumbling. He's able to present you faultless. He's able to, to have you in his presence with glory and joy. And then he says, to God our Savior, the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be, watch this, glory, which is the full, the full outring of all of his attributes, majesty, his regal right to be king of kings, Dominion, the authority that he has over nations and his church, over you, over me, over all creation and all angels, majesty, dominion, and authority. Jesus said, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth for all time, now, and forevermore. So he ends with one of the most beautiful doxologies in the New Testament and saying, while there's still false teachers out there, while there are those things that will be a struggle for you, he said, listen, I know God can keep you from falling. God can present you faultless. God can bring you before his presence with great glory and joy. He alone is wise. To him be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we're used to seeing warning labels. Whether in a prescription or a piece of equipment. Thank you for giving us a warning label about false teachers. For reminding us that there are those that would pervert the gospel of Christ. That would subvert the very doctrines and truths about you as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. About your attributes about the person of our Lord Jesus Christ and his deity and his humanity and his virgin birth and his teaching and his miracles and his sinless life and his death as our substitute and his bodily resurrection, his ascension to heaven, his current ministry there, his return for the church, his second coming to set up his kingdom. Those that would subvert the very gospel itself that is only in Christ that salvation is found, and it is only by your grace and only through faith. Those that would subvert the word of God, that it not, is not true or reliable or inspired. Lord, thank you for giving to us the warning label upon those false teachers, but also for letting us know that we can, by your love, keep ourselves in the experience of your love that you promised to keep us from falling. So, Lord, we commit your people to you. May we be those who not only believe the gospel, but live the gospel, proclaim the gospel, and defend the gospel for your glory and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.